Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles with you, open to Nehemiah chapter 10. I'm not going to read the first 27 verses. And the reason why, if you look at verse 1, it says, Now on the sealed document with the names of Nehemiah the governor, and it lists all the people who signed this document. And we're going to find out what that document is. But starting in verse 28, Really, verse 28 and 29 are really what I would call the meat and potatoes. This is the promise or the covenant which they're making. And then verses 30 on down are three specific commitments they're going to make to keep the covenant. Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 28. Now the rest of the people, the priest, the Levite, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, and all those who had knowledge and understanding, are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God our Lord and His ordinances and His statutes." And that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy them on the Sabbath or a holy day. We will forego the the crops the seventh year and exaction of every debt. We also place in ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the continued grain offering, for the continual burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moon, for the appointed times, for the holy things, and for the sin offerings to make an atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of our God. Likewise, we cast lots with a supply of wood among the priests, the Levites, and the people so they may bring it to the house of our God, according to, the, according to our Father's households at fixed times annually, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law, that they might bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree to the house of the Lord annually, and to bring to the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, as it is written in the law, for the priests who are ministering in the house of our God. We will also bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine, and the oil to the priests at the chambers of the house of our God, and the tithe of our ground to the Levites, for the Levites are they who receive the tithes in all the rural towns." The priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine, and the oil to the chambers. There are the utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers, and the singers. Thus we will not neglect the house of of our God. There was a gentleman named James Montgomery Boyce. He lived from July the 7th, 1938, and recently passed away June the 15th 
of 2000. He was an American Reformed Christian theologian. He was a Bible teacher, an author, and a speaker. And he was known for his writing on the authority of Scripture and the defense of biblical inerrancy. In other words, the Bibles without error. He also served as senior minister of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia from 1968 until he passed away. Now, the reason I bring him up this morning, he has a commentary on Nehemiah, specifically on this chapter. And he talks about a story, about a conversation he had with a psychologist. And he just comes out and asks the psychologist this question. With all the money being poured into and all the money being spent on therapy, why don't more people change? The answer that was given by a psychologist was this. Because most people don't really want the change. In the final analysis, he says, they're not willing to do what is necessary for change. Change will not happen unless there's some sort of commitment made. Now, as I look over the horizon, go back to the, uh, I wasn't alive then, but back to the turn of the 20th century we're at now, and you kind of look at preaching and Bible teaching and Christian behavior, there was a day when there was great emphasis put on the externals, your behavior, how you wore your hair, uh, what you wore to church, how you talked, I mean, how you uh, talk with other people. So much emphasis was on the outside, if you will. And it seemed like they were the only things that mattered. Now we swung the other way. There's much emphasis and attention giving on understanding the inner part. In other words, what's true to me? What's, what's truth to me? How's it relative to me? What's right for me might not be right for you. And it's viewed as shallow or superficial to talk about behavior or to even talk about making commitments to behave differently and to follow through those commitments. So flesh that out just a little more so you understand what I'm trying to say. A lot of times people will have their behavior and then they run to the Bible, Scripture, and they pull out all these verses out of context to support that behavior rather than going to Scripture itself saying, what does he, God want me to do? All right, then I submit to the authority of Scripture. Then I say, yes, I'm going to do that. Then I make commitment to do that. We don't see that anymore. In fact, I had a conversation with a guy at the airport the other day. He told me up front he did not believe the Bible. But then he proceeded in our discussion to say, well, the Bible says, I said, hold up. You told me you don't believe the Bible. Well, yeah, but how can you bring in something that you don't believe in to support an argument you're trying to make? Just saying. Now, if you look at Scripture as a whole, it will cause us to have a balance between the inner self, the heart, and the outward appearance. Like I told the kids, God's concerned about your heart because if your heart's right, it's naturally going to be expressed in your behavior and your, how you do things. And that's what Nehemiah 10 is all about. Now, I'm not saying we need to do precisely what they did then, but let's be honest, this chapter is in the Bible, and it's there for a reason. I remind you of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, 
for correction and for training in righteousness. So we need to look at this chapter and deal with it. And we find that they make a covenant with God. This sealed document, sealed with the signatures of those people listed from verse 1 down to verse 27. A covenant, an agreement, a promise, a pledge, a bond. Now, a covenant is a chosen relationship or partnership in which two parties make binding promises to each other, often accompanied by taking an oath, maybe having a ceremony. It contains defined obligations and commitments, and it's different from a contract because it's relational and personal. Some places in the Bible you can read about they would take animals and cut them in half, and they'd walk between that, indicate if any party breaks this covenant, may the party be torn in two just like those animals. This was serious stuff. They desire to change is the point I am making, and they make a commitment. They make a covenant, then come back with three major commitments to follow through. But let's go back to verse 1 through 8. We see the chief leaders and the priests who sign. And look in verse 1, the sealed document we read. This signifies legal assent to a written document. And here the seals refer to the signatures of those leaders. And you look, you'll see it in, your Amer- in the English translation, and in the Hebrew as well, the conjunction and between Nehemiah and Zedekiah. That conjunction does not appear between any other names. And it's indicating that those two represented the civil government. There are 22 priestly names. 15 are names of families. Now, Ezra is not mentioned because he belonged to the family of Sariah. And the same is true of Eliashab, the high priest. Now, verses 9 through 13, you will see the Levites who signed. 17 Levitical names. Some are family groups. Some are individual names. Some are families who returned with Zerubbabel. Six or seven mentioned in the group are those who taught the law back in chapter 8, verse 7. And then you see verses 14 through 27, the leaders of the people. These were family representatives. The first 21 you read there are parallel or nearly parallel to the list you find in Ezra chapter 2, verse 33 through 30, and Nehemiah chapter 7. The remaining 23 include some of the families who helped build the wall. You see that in Nehemiah 3. Perhaps some of the new ones that just returned from Babylon recently. And some could have been in Judah during the captivity altogether, but now have recently joined as they saw this work progressing. Those are a lot of names there. And I hope you understand why, yes, I'm being chicken. That's a lot of Hebrew names to get through. And I probably birched them when I'm trying to render them. But those names are there for a reason. You, you realize this is a, a whole community event. This is not one person signing on behalf of everybody. They had people signing this thing off from the leaders on down to family representatives. And you see the solemn promise, what I said to meet the potatoes earlier. And look at verse 28, all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. It was important to them maintain their distinctive beliefs and ethical principles that need to separate from the people. Even Jesus told us we'd be in the world, but not of the world. We have to be careful because God still 
desires his people to separate themselves by rejecting the values and beliefs that are contrary to his will. And we must take this seriously. And there's two, two extremes of this. We can take that and say, I'm just going to isolate myself and live in my ivory temple. Who cares what happens? The other extreme was, well, I'll become too accommodating to the world and not be so hard on it. Then you get into a thing called syncretism, which is a blending of beliefs and teachings that you can't really distinguish between the two of them. Brothers and sisters, that's where we're at as society. It's like someone put up a buffet table of all these different belief systems in the world, and people go through, I'll take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and we've been so much accommodating that you can't really distinguish between us and the rest of the world. I mean, why? what makes us Christians? What makes us Baptists, much less a Southern Baptist? There are distinctions. One distinctive we have as Southern Baptists, you hear people say it, once saved, always saved. Now, we need to flush that out just a little bit more. That means when you come to faith in Christ, in that moment, when you confess to Christ, you admit you're a sinner, in that moment you become justified in the eyes of God because Jesus' blood now covers your sin. But that's not over at that one. That's just the beginning of the journey. Then you follow in baptism, declaring your faith that I'm dead to myself. I'm living for Jesus now. He is my Lord and my Savior. Now becomes the process of sanctification. That's day by day changing more and more into Christ. And that takes daily dying to self. To put it more bluntly, we have to put our, our pride aside and, and let it die on a daily basis. That's year by year, month by month, week by week, day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, moment by moment, a constant dying to self and depends upon God and Jesus Christ. It's a process that we become more like Christ. And why do we call ourselves Baptists? Because we believe in believer's baptism. We don't christen infants here. We believe in believer's baptism. Here's another one I just thought of. You know why the pulpit's in the center of, this is not a stage, I'm not an actor, this is a platform, all right? Why is the pulpit, or the sacred reading desk, as it used to be called way back when, why is it at the center of the platform? Do you know why? There is a theological reason why. Because the preaching of God's Word is at the center, the reading of God's Word is at the center of our worship. That's why that's here, not to the side. Sorry, I chased the rabbit. Let's get back to the text. We don't want to lose our Christian way of thinking and acting. That has to be passed down. People don't realize the differences. Now, I work with people from other denominations, other beliefs, and even unbelievers, but they have to know not only what I believe, but why I believe it. Look what it says they, their sons and their daughters, they're including the young people and their children, which is so important. Look in verse 29. They bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God. Now, there's blessings when you follow through the covenant and curses for breaking it. And the pledge that follows presupposes a detailed knowledge of the law. They knew the law. They just read it. Look what they say in verse 29. They are promising, they are making a covenant with Almighty God to, quote, keep and to observe all the commandments of God our Lord and His ordinances and His statutes. 
That is the covenant in which they're making. And when you look at that, you can come quickly to the conclusion that submission to the authority of God's word is unmistakably the command that you see here. See, the first step in resolving the problems that they were having or did have was the commitment to God's word. The same is true for us today. A lot of the problems that we have in our personal life and in church life together as a body of Christ can be solved if we just simply would go back to the Word of God to see what it has to say and quit watching Twitter, uh, Twitter, Facebook, and social media. Go back to the Word. Don't take my word for it. Go back to the Word and read it yourself. The authority of Scripture has to be applied to present situations. I admit, I've read Nehemiah before, but I got this far into it. Can I be honest? I kind of skimmed through it sometimes when I read it before. This is the first time I really sat down and took a good, hard look at it. It's not just rebuilding the temple and the wall. What you see happening is rebuilding of their faith. Look what these people did. They're making a covenant with God to keep his commandments. And out of that comes three main commitments that you find in the rest of the chapter, basically from verse 30 to the end, verse 39. Because they desire to keep all his laws and his statutes, they make three main commitments. Look, honor God through marriage. Verse 30, look, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Now, back in Exodus chapter 34, verses 12 through 16, God forbid them to marry people from the land that they were going into. However, Israel had been doing it ever since they got into the land. Samson, David, Solomon, Ahab, just to name a few. And that's when problems start to happen. Now, let me be perfectly clear. Hear me perfectly clear, please. This is not about a racial concern or racial uh, prejudice anyway. The purpose was to keep the faith pure because the family was the main vehicle of passing the faith on to future generations. To marry outside the faith was to invite compromise, apostasy, hindrance to the faith into one's home. We cannot forsake the family as the most basic unit and expect to pass on the faith to future generations. Now, if we take an honest look at marriage right now, marriage inside the church and marriage outside the church, sadly, tragically, don't look any different. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be bound, literally unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? I'm just going to say it, it matters when you marry someone if that person is a believer or not. It's going to cause problems if they're not. It's going to cause problems between you and your spouse. And when you raise children, it's going to become a real huge problem. What morality are you going to teach your kids? Because kids learn by watching you. It's, it's taught. I mean, it's caught, not taught. And my kids are watching me when they, when they were growing up, my girls. Does dad, does dad actually really believe what he preaches every Sunday? Because they saw dad at home. 
They saw dad when I got mad or upset. And they, they saw how me and Tammy reacted to each other and how we responded to each other. We have failed in raising our kids if we don't care about whether or not the spouse are about to marry is a believer. There's going to be problems. Because Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 25, Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, will not happen if both of them are not on the same page about who Jesus Christ is. That back in Ephesians, that's about wives submitting unto your husbands as to the Lord. Husband loves your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for. Chapter 6, children obey your parents. Later in verse 6, fathers do not provoke your children to wrath. All that instruction to the family cannot be possible to be lived out if both of you are not on the same page. Now, I'm not saying it can't be done, but I would highly advise you not to do it. Because in the family, I'm just going to say this one more time. In your family, that's the most basic and most important place there is where there's passing on of the faith. More, more important, preaching has its place, but the home is where it begins. The home. Now, I probably said some stuff that may have made some of you upset. That's fine. That's not my intent. I want you to go back and look up the scriptures about marriage, what marriage should be, and how it should be lived out. And I'll be honest, I've made my fair share of mistakes too. Ain't no one in this room perfect. We all have skeletons in our closet. We're all sinners saved by grace. But it's about making a commitment. I've done this wrong, and I'll make a commitment to make it right and follow that commitment through. And that's what they're doing. Because when their sons and daughters start to intermarry, that's when Baal start entering in. All these false gods. In fact, parts of the Old Testament, you can read about how the children of Israel, God's people, would sacrifice babies and crack their skull on rocks. Yes, it's in the Bible. Go find it for yourself. I'll give you the reference later after service. Now, it can be done. Now, if you find yourself married to an unbeliever now, I'm not going to counsel you for divorce. You need to stay in it. And talk to your spouse about your faith, not only by verbally, but also by what you do. And there's no way I can get all that right now. I'm just telling you, back then, they're going to honor God through marriage and are not going to marry their kids off to some foreign people because they believe differently than they did. Whoever knew all these hot-button issues were in Nehemiah, huh? How about the next one, honoring the Lord on the Sabbath? Verse 31, look what they say. When these people come in, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. It's not so much about worship per se, and probably perhaps they even quit worshiping at one point, but what they're getting at is their attitude had become very casual towards worship, towards the Sabbath. They were treating it like a day like any other day. They were supposed to treat the Sabbath as a day of rest and worship. They probably still went to the synagogue, but they didn't follow through. They were just kind of going through the motions, if you will. Now they're making a specific commitment. We're going to honor God on the Sabbath. Now, as New Testament believers, we're not under the law. We're under grace. We are to observe a day of worship, but not legalistically, or at least 
legalistic fashion, I don't think there ha- I don't think there should have to be blue laws. I'm not going to sit here and tell you what you can and cannot do. I'm going to get to this. The point is, how do you come at worship? How do you approach Sundays? And I know that the nine to five Monday through Friday jobs are gone. People are working shifts. They're working split shifts. They're working midnight shift. People work three 12-hour shifts. I know. I work for an airline outside this place. I understand. And there's times when I was coming up before I, uh, I got a lot of time that I would have to miss a Sunday or two. But the point is, how do we approach it? Are we, in, we just blowing it off and saying, I don't know how to go, I don't want to go, or do we really want to go? It goes down to the motivation of the heart. Do you take the appropriate steps in your preparation to assure that when you do come, it's a day of worship, that God is exalted, He's honored and glorified in it? In other words, what is your priority? Do you avoid other Sunday plans that conflict with the church? Or is church only important when it's convenient? Here's the point I'm making. You can get mad at me all you want. But your children and your grandchildren are going to hear the message from you very loudly and very clearly by what you do and do not do. Just like you'll hear me loud and clear more than what I preach from the pulpit. How does Tim live this out? The point is, we need to set aside a day. And really, you should worship God every day. It doesn't have to be a formal service, it can be in your car, it can be at home. But you need to make a commitment. How that reflects out to meet with the people of God. You know why we're all stressed out, freaked out? We have so much on our plates, we don't know how to rest. That's one part of Sabbath. Rest. Don't do yard work. Weed eat. Rest. And here's another thing. If we're going to take a legal asset, Approach with this and say, well, people need to quit working on Sabbath, just come to church. Oh, yeah, well, if you say that, then why do you go out to eat after church? Because those people are working to serve you, and if you wouldn't go, they wouldn't be open on Sunday. See, we like to double talk, don't we? But they're going to honor God on the Sabbath. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 through 25, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day is he talking about? The return of Christ. Each year that goes by, each month that goes by, each week that goes by, each day that goes by, each hour that goes by, each minute that goes by, each second goes by, every heartbeat that you have and every breath you draw in, you are one step closer to the time of Christ's return. We need to meet to encourage one another. Because know what the enemy will do to you? You stay back, he's going to pull you in that isolationism. I'm the only one in this situation. If they really knew me, they wouldn't love me. They're going to reject me. All those lies the enemy tells you about meeting together. No, this is a place you can find encouragement and love. People will laugh with you. They'll cry with you. We call this a sanctuary. By definition, a safe place where you can be you and I can be myself. And together we go 
to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. Not only are they going to do honor God on the Sabbath, but they're going to honor the Lord with their finances. That's basically verse 32 on, but you can find in verse 32, 35, 37, and 39. Look what it says in verse 32. We also place ourselves under obligation to contribute. Now that phrase, place ourselves, can be literally translated, imposed commandments on us. Verse 39, we will not neglect or forsake the house of our God. They agree to give at special offerings from their businesses and farms, from their family income, which is ties towards the priest's necessities. And the very fact they're doing this indicates to us that this practice had long been in decline. The New Testament commands us to give regularly, to tithe, to give sacrificially and cheerfully. In Mark chapter 12, verse 40, 41 through 44, the widow's might, story of Jesus sitting, teaching, and behind him is the temple. And remember, there were temp, uh, money changers in the temple. All of these Jews that live around the area would come and exchange their money into temple money, and that's where the money changers were. And as they did that, they had this box they put it in and make a clanking sound. I can imagine clank, 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 clank. So as he's teaching, you hear all this going on behind him, and all of a sudden, all amongst that clink, 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 you hear this little clink. And he stops and says, basically, I'm paraphrasing, that's the way you should give because she gave out of her resources, not out of her abundance. In other words, she gave right off the top. She didn't wait to pay everything off. She gave right then and there what she had. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, each one, must, each one must do just as he has proposed in his heart, not grudgingly under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I'm going to date myself with this phrase. God is not a Sears and Roebuck catalog in the sky. You're not supposed to go, well, God, I'll give this 50 if you give me 100 in return. It doesn't work like that. You give to God simply because he's God. And I did an illustration up here one time. I had 10 apples and 10, uh, 10 pears, 10 bananas, 10 pineapples. What's, one, what's uh, 10% of 10? One, right? You take one and you leave it over. And you look at what God wants you to give. What's left over, you have more than enough on what you need. But here's the point. You have a job, right? Most of you do. If not all of you do. Who gave you the brain in the first place so you could have that job? Who gave you intelligence and the skills to do that? God did. He created you that way. Well, let's even go further than that. Who allowed you to wake up this morning? Who's keeping creation in order? Who's allowing you to breathe? Who's giving your heart the idea to pump and give you life itself? It is God. He's the source of everything. That's why he says, trust me. Look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now on this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. You give to God because he's abundantly blessed you with life. It's not about getting a new car. It's not about getting new clothes. Oh, God, why is it we hear so much praise when people are here? And what we do, I, I believe God will use doctors to heal people. I've seen it. 
But here's the point. Will we still praise God when he doesn't? We should. I love my mama very much. She passed away last October. Died of cancer. And it dawned on me. I've been praying God to heal her. Well, he did exactly that. She's completely healed now. And she's in a place where I desperately want to be one day. But it hurts because I'm separated. Can't talk to her. Can't see her. But my faith is like that anchor in that storm. It hurts. I cry. Even Jesus himself wept. You know that, right? He went and raised Lazarus from the dead, but he purposely kept back. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew all this. And yet when he saw the people and their mourning and their pain, he felt it too. And the scriptures say two words, Jesus wept. He understood it. This chapter, 10 of Nehemiah, presents so many challenges for us as believers today. It demonstrates the importance of submission to God's word, emphasizes the holiness of the believing community, the church, and it challenges us to be faithful in support of corporate worship or community worship. These are hard subjects. You don't hear them preached on very much anymore, do you? There's a man at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, a systematic theology professor. His name is Dr. John Hammond. He's author of Biblical Foundations for Baptist Churches. And in that, he used this chapter as a model of how a church should go about covenant renewal. He argues that uh, we should return to covenants because it provides accountability and discipline and will increase our corporate strength. And most importantly of all, it will please Christ. It will warn lost church members and better our own witness. By the way, you're already in covenant. How many believers do we have in the house to say amen? How many believers in Christ this morning? All right. You can say it with a little more conviction. That's all right. You know, all right. You're in a covenant with God right now. You realize that, right? Called the new covenant. What did Jesus say in the upper room that day or that night? This is the new covenant written in my blood. God's law has not changed. Jesus' sacrifice covers or atones for our sins, but we're still in covenant with God. We should still strive to be more like Christ. And by the way, you can't do it on your own. You have to have the Holy Spirit. There's nowhere else around it. If the law shows us one thing, very clearly shows us this, no matter how we try, we cannot keep it. It can never be good enough. Holy, it doesn't work. As Paul says, the law is our taskmaster that drives us to the foot of the cross. We cry out for him for mercy. But his law hasn't changed. God forbid if we're sitting here this morning thinking, well, I am a Christian, but, you know, I do what I want, then God's going to forgive me. That's very thin ice to be skating on. You may fool me, and I may fool you, fool you, as I said last week, but God knows the intent of your heart. There's no such thing as cheap grace. Your salvation, my salvation, cost the Lord his life. The great I am, the holy of holies, 
allowed himself to be nailed to a wooden cross by a bunch of mortal, broken, sinful human beings. Why? Because he loved you that much. Still does, by the way. Now, I'm not saying that perhaps we should look at have a church covenant. By the way, most churches, specifically Southern Baptist Church in the South, some of them still have a church covenant when you walk in the door that we make to each other. Accountability, responsibility. Because Miss Audie sitting up there, she truly loves me as her brother in Christ. She is going to point out sin in my life, is she not? Because she's concerned about my relationship with Christ. And vice versa. It's not that we throw stones at each other. It's no different if you see your son or daughter climbing on the oven. You're going to say, well, wait till he burns his hand and he'll learn. No, you're going to, you probably won't even say anything to the child. You might pick the child up and throw him across the room. No, don't do that. Because we truly love somebody, as Christ does, we will warn them. The way I've always done it is say, look, I'll use Dahl, for example. Dahl, I don't know what's going on with you. What you're doing is not right. But you know what? I'm struggling in this area. Let's go together to the throne of grace, and let's both pray together. Because you know what? You're never done. There's always something to work on. There's always something to change. Because God is wanting to change you into the image of his being, wanting to make you more and more Christ-like. And that is a daily moment-by-moment thing, and it hurts us a lot of times. It's constant change. I should look more like Christ today than I did yesterday. We should look more like Christ as a body today than we did last week or last year. But no matter how you feel about all that, one thing that we can never forget, that change will not happen until there's commitment made. We talk about changing behavior and bad habits. Well, you tell God, I want to quit that. You repent of it. You confess it. You turn away from it, but you have to replace it with a good habit or that bad habit will come right back in its place. That's what takes self-discipline and self-control. Oh, remember, self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. You have to have the Holy Spirit in order to have success. In a lot of where we find ourselves, are you willing to do whatever is necessary for change? Are you really willing to open up your heart and God say, do whatever you want, do whatever you see fit? My life is yours. Let me tell you, even now, that uneasiness, feeling a little uncomfortable talking about Sabbath and giving and tithing and marriage to a non-Christian, all these things, that tension, that uneasiness, could be the Holy Spirit convicting you in some areas. It's the Holy Spirit that leads us into righteousness and also convicts us of sin. Jesus didn't leave us by ourselves. We have his spirit with us. He is here with us. You always hear political parties 
politicians talk about change. You know why there's no change in D.C.? I'm going to throw the stone at somebody else right now. You know why there's no change in D.C.? Most of our politicians don't do what's necessary to change. Bottom line. How come some of our communities, some of our churches, because we're not willing to do what's necessary for change? And you know what? I'm right down here with you. God knows I have my own problems, my own habits, as we call them, skeletons in our closet. All of us, like I said, I can't emphasize it, we're not perfect. It will never will be on the side of heaven. It's a constant change into who Christ is. That's what we're called to do. And when you do that, the more you become like Christ, the more close you get to Christ, the harder the attack will become because the enemy doesn't want you doing that. And he'll throw everything at you. Then you have the world. A lot of people are pretty much okay where they're at. They don't want to change. They'll tell you that. What we desperately need in our community, our state, and our country, in the world, is people who will rise up and be willing to do whatever is necessary. And I'll conclude with this. Most of our brothers and sisters, not all of them in Afghanistan, cannot possibly fathom the walk that we have with Christ. What I mean by that? We have really no persecution. We're meeting in a great facility, air-conditioned, padded pews. We can move about with no one checking on us. Got the fear of death right around the next corner. They can't, they can't imagine that. And yet, any little inconvenience will just stop going. Well, well I said, I ain't going to do it no more. And one thing I learned a long, long time ago, after going to the pastorate, not exactly what I thought was going to be. But I learned one thing. If I'm going to do what God wants me to do and honor him, then I have to be committed to the point it doesn't matter what people do around me. Doesn't matter if all of you walked away from the faith tomorrow. Doesn't matter if my wife walked away from the faith. I have to be so committed, no matter what, I'm going to say committed to Christ. No matter what comes down the road. Our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, most of them, not all of them, are that committed. And a lot of them will probably lose this life on this earth. But what glory rates them? What a reward they will have. What are you willing to do? Are you willing to put it all out there? Huh. Often thought if we could have, if we had the technology, if God would allow one of those people of Israel to come stand and talk to us and we could understand them, what would they say to us in light of the Messiah coming and crucifixion and the resurrection and all? I wonder what they would say to us. After everything they've been through up to this point, going back to Ezra chapter 1 and up to chapter 10 in Nehemiah, what would they say? What questions they would ask? 
just food for thought. If you have any questions about the text, you can see me after, sir, but right now you need to deal with God and what he's telling you to do. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we had together and the reading of your, of your word. Father, we know that you want us to be different from those of the world. That we are to be Christ-like in everything that we do. But Father, we admit and confess to you, we cannot do that on our own. We desperately need you. We need the empowerment of your spirit to guide us, to walk with us. But Father, we also know we need to make a commitment. A commitment to be willing to be used of you. And to change areas of our lives, dear God, that right now that you're bringing to our mind and to our heart. So we may be able to do that. Uh, Father, I pray that all the people here will feel your arms of love and peace wrap around them. And let them know this is a safe place. To be honest with themselves and honest with you. You know our hearts. You know the intent of our heart. Oh God, like those little boys and girls prayed, create in us a clean heart so that we will be instruments that you can use to reach the lost, to comfort the mourning, and encourage one another. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please?